Welcome to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, and sometimes my cat Winston joins me. This podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. I can't breathe. Those words have been heard around the world after the death of George Floyd in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I can't breathe has become a rallying cry for African Americans across the country. To know that these men cried out for help and their deaths could have been avoided if only police had given them their basic human right, the right to breathe, is heartbreaking and truly despicable on the part of law enforcement. I want to be perfectly clear from the outset. It doesn't matter whether someone has a criminal record or not. No one deserves to be deprived of the ability to breathe in the street with such callous disregard for human life. Black lives matter. But before George Floyd, in fact, just three months before the death of George Floyd, there was Manuel Ellis. His case hasn't received nearly the amount of national coverage Despite the fact that there's video and audio footage in his case, and the Pierce County Sheriff's Office botched the investigation from the start by not recusing themselves from the investigation into Manuel's death due to a conflict of interest. This case is one of the most difficult cases I've ever covered on this podcast. As I researched this case, the anger and hatred and sadness and heartbreak I felt was at times all-consuming. I'll be honest, I haven't watched the video and I haven't listened to the audio. Mentally and emotionally, I just can't. Seeing the words, I can't breathe, written out in countless articles, and knowing that these were Manuel's last words just hurt too much. I couldn't bring myself to listen to those words, and I admire the strength of Manuel's family in listening to those words over and over again. This episode comes with a host of trigger warnings beyond our normal intro. This episode is going to cover police brutality against a Black man, and we'll be referencing physical and sexual abuse as well as mental health issues. If any of these topics are triggering for you, we highly recommend you skip this week's episode. As much as my heart broke researching this case, I was incredibly fortunate to find several resources that actually cared about who Manuel was and his life, because he was more than just what happened to him. He was a person with hopes and dreams and struggles, just like the rest of us. I want to say thank you to the Seattle Times and the podcast A Walk Home, both of whom not only covered Manuel's case, but also his life and who he was as a person. Manuel Ellis, who went by Manny, was born on August 28, 1986, the middle child of his family. He had one older brother and one younger sister. Sadly, Manny's dad died when he was just two months old, so he never got to know him. And unfortunately, when his mom remarried, 
it wasn't exactly roses with his stepdad. Manny's sister, Monet, said that her dad was a violent man and he often took his beatings out on Manny. His sister, Monet, referred to Manny as her dad's quote-unquote punching bag. And that kind of abuse takes its toll on a person. And Manny was no different. But more on that later. Despite the abuse he suffered, Manny was still the jokester of the family. He played soccer, football, basketball, and he wrestled. He was an athlete through and through. But he also played the Mad Hatter in a children's theater production of Alice in Wonderland. His family described him as the life of the party, a social butterfly who had a gift for being able to talk to people. The Ellis kids grew up in Lakewood and Tacoma, just outside of Seattle. Manny moved out of his mom's house at 18 and he started selling cars. When Manny hit his teens, he started experimenting with drugs and alcohol and he became more rebellious. At 17, Manny was arrested for robbery. At 18, Manny had moved from weed to meth. And by 24, Manny was using meth on a daily basis. The more he used, the more his mental health deteriorated. Manny was diagnosed with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, depression, ADHD, and PTSD. He was prescribed several medications along with mood stabilizers. According to Monet, Manny was never taught how to process his trauma, so he tried to suppress it instead. Manny spent some time living with a girlfriend in Portland, Oregon, before he moved back to Washington when he was 24. That's when Manny's mom realized her son wasn't just using weed. He had a far more serious drug problem, and she found out that Manny had been stealing from his ex-girlfriend, which is part of the reason why the couple broke up. In 2014, Manny was arrested and charged for trying to cash a stolen check at a money tree. Manny pled guilty to second-degree identity theft, and he served 23 days in jail. Manny would be arrested six more times for violating the mental health court program. He started incurring court fines as a result. Because of being in and out of treatment and jail, it was hard for Manny to hold down a job and find stable housing, which meant it was hard for him to pay all of those court fines. But even with all that going on, Manny still helped take care of his family. He was a loving and funny uncle to Monet's kids, taking his nephews to the movies, playing basketball them, and he watched Seahawks games with his nephews every Sunday. Even though Monet was his younger sister and the baby of the family, Monet always supported Manny and helped take care of him. The two were thick as thieves. When Manny was around 30 years old, his family learned that he'd been sexually abused by a cousin when he was around five years old. Suddenly, Manny's behavior, his struggles with drug addiction and mental health, all of it made sense. Unfortunately, Manny still had some difficulties to overcome. He had a two-year-old daughter who moved with her mom from Tacoma to Spokane, basically on the opposite side of the state. After his daughter left, Manny's mental health went downhill, and he struggled to keep his addiction under control. According to Monet, Manny suffered a quote-unquote psychological break after being arrested in September 2019. Manny was arrested for assaulting a fast food worker during an attempted robbery while he was high on meth. He was found naked, and a sheriff's deputy used a taser to subdue him because Manny wouldn't stay down on the ground and allegedly quote-unquote charged toward law enforcement. After this arrest, Manny had an epiphany, and he voluntarily sought mental health treatment for the first time. Manny also briefly stayed with Monet and her kids. 
According to Monet and Manny's mom, Manny was transforming his life in 2019. He was on the right path. In late 2019, Manny moved into a nine-bedroom sober living home in South Tacoma. He quickly earned a reputation as a respectful, kind, and tidy tenant. Manny started going to outpatient treatment, he started taking antipsychotics for his schizophrenia, and he was talking about starting his own landscaping business. But the most important thing Manny found in that sober living house was his faith and music. Manny was an incredibly talented drum player. He started playing drums for the church worship team. Manny fell in love with church and he went four days a week. He helped out at the sober living house by hooking up the Wi-Fi and doing other electronics work while he was in between jobs. By all accounts, Manny was on the right track and embracing his sobriety. Quote, he wanted to do the right thing. End quote. But Manny's path would come to an abrupt end on March 3rd, 2020. On that night, Manny went to church service where he played the drums until about 9.30 p.m. When he got home, sometime between 10 and 10.30, Manny called his mom and FaceTimed her for about 30 minutes. His last words to her were, I love you. Manny then had dinner with his landlord and chatted for a while before his landlord and wife went to bed. Some of the medications Manny took made him somewhat restless, so he decided to take a walk, which he did often. He walked to a local 7-Eleven for a snack, and the clerk later told investigators that Manny was nice and respectful and always said hello. The 7-Eleven was a little over a mile from the sober living home. It should have been a short walk back home, but it wasn't. In fact, Manny never made it home at all. Before I get into the events of March 3rd, 2020, I want to add another trigger warning here. What I'm about to tell you is incredibly disturbing and difficult to hear. Please listen to the rest of this episode with extreme caution. On his way back to the sober living home around 11.20 p.m., Manny encountered two police officers, Burbank and Collins. What happened next, according to Burbank and Collins, is this. They came across Manny after finding him standing in the middle of an intersection. They claimed Manny tried to open the door of a slow-moving car, but failed. Manny allegedly approached Burbank and Collins while they were sitting in their patrol car. Burbank claimed Manny had asked them for help with some warrants he had. Then, Burbank claimed Manny threatened to punch him, causing Burbank to roll up his windows, at which point Manny ended up punching the window. Again, according to Burbank and Collins, Manny, quote, abruptly and randomly attacked them, end quote, after Manny hit the patrol car. Collins got out of the car and claimed Manny, quote unquote, assumed a fighting stance towards him. Burbank then used his door to door check Manny, hitting him with the door to draw his attention away from Collins. According to Collins, Manny, quote, used superhuman strength to lift him, throwing Collins to the ground and starting a wild fight, end quote. I should note, Burbank didn't witness any of this, despite being right there. Burbank eventually subdued Manny, punching him repeatedly while Collins put all of his weight on Manny. Despite this, Burbank's and Collins' post-incident interviews state that Burbank tased a quote-unquote disabled Manny for five seconds before Manny then quote-unquote threw Collins off of him. According to Burbank, even after he tased Manny a second time, 
quote, the situation was akin to Manny almost doing push-ups with Burbank and Collins on his back, end quote. Collins used a lateral vascular neck restraint on Manny, which is a type of chokehold. About three minutes after the encounter with Manny began, two additional Tacoma police officers arrived on scene, Timothy Rankin and Messiah Ford. When they arrived at 11.24 p.m., Manny was already handcuffed and Collins and Burbank were holding Manny down. Ford told investigators he held one of Manny's feet and told him to relax. Rankin got on top of Manny's back, at which point Manny told Rankin that he couldn't breathe. Both Rankin and Ford would later tell investigators that they heard Manny say he couldn't breathe. According to Rankin, Manny was making, quote, really strange animal grunting noises, end quote, before he told Rankin again that he couldn't breathe. According to Rankin, Manny said he couldn't breathe in a, quote, very calm, normal voice, end quote, to which Rankin replied, quote, if you're talking to me, you can breathe just fine, end quote. More officers arrived on scene and helped place a hobble on Manny. Basically, the hobble made it so that Manny's legs were tied together with a nylon strap that connected to the handcuffs Manny was wearing. So Manny was face down in a hog-tied position after telling officers that he couldn't breathe. After being hobbled, Manny didn't move. One of the officers claimed he heard agonal breathing from Manny, like the blast breaths of someone who was dying. Officers briefly rolled Manny to his side, at which point Rankin observed Manny had a high temperature, was sweating profusely, and was bleeding from his face. Instead of leaving Manny on his side, Rankin rolled Manny back onto his stomach and used his knees to apply pressure on Manny. Rankin would later claim he did this because Manny was quote-unquote violently thrashing around. But other officers on the scene would directly contradict this statement, stating that Manny wasn't moving at all at this point, meaning that there was no reason to apply additional force to Manny's back. Up to this point, neither Burbank Collins or Rankin had called for any medical assistance for Manny. They also never told dispatch that Manny said he couldn't breathe or that he was having agonal breathing. An ambulance wasn't called to the scene until 11:27, about 6 minutes after the encounter began. At this point, a spit hood was put on Manny's head, despite the fact that Manny had told the officers he couldn't breathe. Five minutes after that, priority medical assistance was requested. The Tacoma Fire Department paramedics arrived on scene at 11.34. Paramedic Nicholas Wilson said Manny was unconscious and unresponsive when they got there. Wilson said Manny's breathing was deteriorating, his heart was weak, and his pupils were quote-unquote fixed and dilated, a possible indication that Manny was brain dead. Rankin was asked by paramedics to remove the restraints from Manny so they could put an IV, but Rankin refused to do so. He would later claim that he didn't want to remove the restraints in case Manny quote-unquote started fighting again. Paramedics pressed the issue and Rankin finally did what they asked. Around 11.35 p.m., Manny stopped breathing. Paramedics tried resuscitating him for almost 40 minutes, performing CPR and intubating him. Manny Ellis was pronounced dead at 12.12 a.m. A box of raspberry donuts and a bottle of water, the snacks he bought from 7-Eleven, were crushed on the ground next to him. 
Manny laid in the street where he died with just a sheet barely covering him as police documented the scene. Monet had missed a FaceTime call from Manny on the night he died. The next day, she listened to the cheerful message from Manny before receiving a call from the medical examiner's office later in the day that Manny was dead. Monet immediately called her mom, Marcia, and her brother, Matthew. There are no words for what the family felt at that moment. The morning after Manny's death, Rankin and Ford exchanged text messages, quote, expressing satisfaction with their performance and saying they wouldn't do anything differently, end quote, in terms of how they handled Manny's death. A spokesperson for the Pierce County Sheriff's Office, aka the office in charge of the investigation into Manny's death, said none of the officers who responded placed a knee on Manny's head or neck. An autopsy was performed three days after Manny's death. The county medical examiner, Thomas Clark, ruled Manny's death a homicide due to hypoxia resulting from physical strength, with contributory conditions of methamphetamine intoxication and a dilated heart. The medical examiner was clear that Manny didn't die of an overdose. Quote, if Manny had overdosed on meth, he likely would have had an abnormal heart rhythm and died suddenly, end quote. Instead, Manny died slowly from a loss of oxygen. According to the medical examiner, the spit mask was probably the most important factor in Manny's death. The medical examiner stated mucus and blood lined the inside mesh of the spit hood, effectively sealing it, further restricting Manny's ability to breathe. The brand of spit mask used had specific instructions against using it on anyone who was having breathing issues, specifically stating that asphyxiation could result from improper use. At the time of Manny's death, Tacoma PD didn't have an official procedural policy in place for how to properly use and apply spit masks. Four officers were placed on administrative leave, but they returned to work two weeks later after the Tacoma PD said there were no known departmental violations. The Pierce County Sheriff's Office conducted a three-month-long investigation into Manny's death. According to their investigation, the arrest was based on Manny, quote, running up to a police patrol car and hitting it. Then, as officers exited their vehicle, they were immediately attacked by Manny, end quote. Investigators from the sheriff's office bought into the Tacoma PD's story that Manny quote-unquote harassed a woman near the intersection police claimed they found him in. Investigators denied the use of a taser and a chokehold. Only after the investigation was complete did the Pierce County Sheriff's Office disclose that one of their deputies was present at the time of Manny's arrest a direct conflict of interest that should have been disclosed immediately and prevented the sheriff's office from conducting the investigation. The sheriff's department knew from day one of their investigation that one of the deputies was at the scene and assisted with the hobble. Meanwhile, Manny's sister Monet held a vigil for Manny on June 3, 2020. Manny's death happened right before the pandemic shut down the world. Quote, Manny's story was cast aside another buried headline of a black man who used drugs and had a fatal run-in with the law, end quote. But then the murder of George Floyd happened, and people actually started paying attention to Monet and Manny's death. Monet hired attorney James Bible, and she had the support of activist group Tacoma Action Collective. The day after the vigil, Monet received a Facebook message from a witness. 
Her name was Sarah McDowell, and not only had she witnessed Manny's death, she had a video of some of the encounter. McDowell's video is 37 seconds long, and in it, Collins can be seen punching Manny repeatedly while he was down on the ground. McDowell can be heard yelling at the officers to stop hitting Manny and quote-unquote just arrest him. McDowell told Monet she was driving to her sister's house on the night Manny died and was passing by the scene when she started recording. She didn't realize what she had until the vigil, which is when she reached out to Monet. Monet was the biggest champion for her brother Manny, especially after George Floyd's murder. Quote, if it wasn't for Manny's sister and his friends screaming at the top of their lungs and George Floyd dying, Manny's death would have been swept under the rug. End quote. Monet did her own investigation, she hunted down videos, and she asked for help. She found information about Manny from a neighborhood chat app where someone posted, quote, they killed that man in cold blood, end quote. Monet tracked down ring camera footage from the house across the street from where Manny died. The audio from the video is clear. You can hear Sarah McDowell yelling at police to stop hitting Manny. You can hear Manny screaming and struggling. And one minute and 40 seconds into the video, Manny is heard screaming that he can't breathe. Quote, it was a man begging for his life and it was a bystander saying, don't, this isn't necessary, end quote. This doorbell camera captured Manny saying he couldn't breathe at least three times. It also captured one of the officers telling Manny to shut the fuck up in response. Over eight minutes of the security camera footage was released to the public by Tacoma Action Collective on June 9th, 2020. Sarah McDowell's video was released to the public by Manny's family on June 14th. It was after these videos were released in mid-June 2020 that Washington Governor Jay Ensley ordered a new investigation by the Washington State Patrol and the State Attorney General's Office. The investigation was launched on June 17, 2020. Burbank, Collins, Rankin, and Ford all refused to be interviewed or questioned by Washington State Patrol investigators. The State Patrol investigation was completed in November 2020. They released 2,169 pages of findings. The state's investigation alleged the use of force against Manny was inconsistent with both Tacoma PD policies and state law. Burbank and Collins were accused of illegally detaining and beating Manny, while Rankin was accused of continuing to use force after Manny was in medical distress. And all three officers were accused of failing to get medical attention for Manny. According to Tacoma PD's use of force policy at the time, the officers must, quote, proportionally align their use of force with the subject's actions, escalating and de-escalating as the subject's actions change, end quote. Deadly force is reserved for situations where officers are confronted with an imminent danger of death or serious bodily injury to themselves or others. When situations are, quote, reasonably stabilized, the application of force must proportionally de-escalate or cease in accordance with the subject's actions, end quote, when control is gained by the officers or the threat is removed. And finally, after applying force, officers have a duty under Tacoma PD policies to check the subject for injuries and request qualified medical assistance as needed. According to an expert on law enforcement's use of force, Manny posed no threat after being hogtied. 
Rankin's continued use of force after that was excessive and violated Tacoma PD's de-escalation policy. Additionally, there was no justification for Collins and Burbank's uses of force against Manny. Fourteen months after Manny's death, charges were filed against Burbank, Collins, and Rankin. In May 2021, Burbank and Collins were charged with second-degree murder, while Rankin was charged with first-degree manslaughter. According to Washington state law, first-degree manslaughter occurs where someone recklessly causes the death of another person. Prosecutors brought second-degree murder charges against Burbank and Collins because they committed an assault against Manny that ultimately led to his death. In Washington state, an assault can be the basis of a felony murder charge, which is not the case in many states. So if the officers committed the assault that ultimately resulted in Manny's death, they can be found guilty of second-degree murder, a.k.a. felony murder. This case is the first instance of the Washington Attorney General charging officers in a use-of-deadly force case. The sentencing range for second-degree murder is 10 to 18 years if the person doesn't have a criminal history. The standard range for first-degree manslaughter with no criminal history is 6.5 to 8.5 years. The probable cause affidavit is where we learn for the first time the sequence of events according to witnesses on the scene. And a lot of what witnesses recall and or filmed directly contradicted what Burbank and Collins reported. These witnesses were never interviewed by the Pierce County Sheriff's Office during its investigation. When asked about this, the Sheriff's Office claimed that none of the witnesses wanted to speak with them. But that's interesting to me because these witnesses had no problem being interviewed by Washington State Patrol investigators. Two of the witnesses said Manny was walking on the sidewalk before approaching Burbank and Collins' patrol car. The witnesses said Manny appeared to be having, quote-unquote, peaceful, apparently respectful conversation with the officers, without any signs of aggression from Manny. When Manny walked away, witnesses saw Burbank open the passenger door of his car, abruptly swinging it and striking Manny from behind, knocking Manny to his knees. As Manny tried to get up, Witnesses said that Burbank got on top of him. Sarah McDowell's video started at 11.21 and 46 seconds. When the video starts, Burbank can be seen wrapping his arms around Manny, lifting him into the air, and driving Manny down into the pavement, punching him as he did so. Manny can then be seen, quote, curling his legs in toward his body, end quote, as Burbank backed away from him. Collins moves in toward Manny, and brings all of his weight down onto him. With Manny underneath him, Colin then starts punching Manny in the head. Meanwhile, Burbank drew his taser and started walking toward Manny. Collins is seen on video hitting Manny in the head four times, with Manny screaming after each blow. Sarah McDowell exited her vehicle at this point, where she then screams at officers to stop hitting Manny. At 11.21 and 56 seconds, a pizza delivery driver in the area starts recording on his phone. The video begins with Collins behind Manny, wrapping around the front of Manny's neck as Burbank aims at Manny with his taser. Collins locked his hands together while squeezing his arm around Manny's neck, applying the lateral vascular neck restraint I discussed earlier. The neighbor in the house across the street from where Manny was killed said he never saw Manny hit the officers. He said it didn't seem like he was fighting at all, and Manny wasn't even defending himself, end quote. 
While the video shows Manny struggling at times against the officer's restraints, it doesn't show Manny attempting to strike or hit the officers at any point. All three civilian witnesses agreed. Manny wasn't fighting back, and they never saw Manny hit Burbank or Collins. The video footage shows Manny still in the LVNR hold by Collins, looking at Burbank with the taser aimed at him. Manny lifts his arms straight up into the air with his palms open and facing Burbank in a surrender-type position. Collins pulls back on Manny's neck, causing Manny to fall backwards onto him. Collins then twists the LVNR hold around Manny's neck, rolling Manny onto the pavement. Manny once again puts his hands up in the surrender position before Burbank fires a five-second taser shot into Manny's chest. Collins maintained the restraint around Manny's neck the entire time. The witness then tells Burbank and Collins, quote, hey, y'all in the wrong now, end quote. As the five-second taser cycle ends, the witness's video shows Manny motionless, with Collins still applying the LVNR hold around Manny's neck. Collins then removes his arms from Manny's neck, and Manny's head falls limply toward the pavement. Collins can then be seen pushing down with his arm onto the back of Manny's head slash neck, pressing Manny's face into the pavement. Burbank calls into dispatch, reporting that he and Collins are dealing with quote-unquote unknown trouble. Manny is seen moving again, screaming and writhing his body and legs as the officers hold his arms behind his back and apply pressure down onto his body. At 11.22 and 26 seconds, Burbank fires the second taser shot. As the witnesses leave the scene, they continue to record the events. One of the officers can be heard telling Manny to put his hands behind his back with the other saying, you're going to get it again. Burbank then fires a third taser shot. Within a minute of the witnesses driving away, Manny started telling Burbank and Collins that he couldn't breathe. At 11.23 and 25 seconds, the doorbell security camera on the house across the street captures Manny clearly saying, quote, can't breathe, sir. Can't breathe. End quote. Less than 15 seconds later, Manny can again be heard pleading with the officers, telling them that he can't breathe. That's when one of the officers tells Manny to shut the fuck up. Rankin and his partner Ford arrived at the scene at 11.24 and 19 seconds. As soon as Rankin got there, he immediately started applying pressure to Manny's back while Collins was still holding on to Manny's leg. Quote, Rankin put all of his weight to the middle of Manny's back, securing his right knee over the top of Manny's spine, just below the base of his neck, with his left knee in the middle of the spine of the lower back, end quote. Rankin then kicked out his own ankles so that he was almost in like a seated position on Manny's back. It was at this point that Rankin said he heard Manny making those really strange animal grunting noises, and he heard him say in a quote-unquote very calm, normal voice that he couldn't breathe. And of course, that's when Rankin told Manny, if you're talking to me, you can breathe just fine. Manny got quiet after that. Rankin moved his right knee, which he claimed caused Manny to quote-unquote violently thrash his body, so Rankin moved his knee back to where it was before. Manny continued to tell Burbank, Collins, and Rankin that he couldn't breathe during this time. At 11.24, Collins requested that backup bring some hobbles. And at 11.25, the hobble was wrapped around Manny's legs 
and then tied to the handcuffs behind Manny's back, so Manny was in a hogtied position. Manny remained face down on the ground. At 11.25 and 21 seconds, Manny spoke his last known words. Quote, can't breathe. Can't breathe. End quote. According to one officer, once that hobble was on, Manny was quiet. He didn't move. Rankin rolled Manny onto his side where he performed a weapon sweep and found nothing. Rankin noticed Manny was hot and sweating profusely and bleeding from the face, all of which led him to believe Manny was experiencing excited delirium. Excited delirium is the explanation police give when someone acts, quote, bizarre, paranoid, and violent, seems to have superhuman strength, overheats, and in some cases, suddenly dies, usually because their heart stops, end quote. Doctors disagree, though, about whether or not this condition is real. At 11.25 and 40 seconds, dispatch asks if anyone on the scene needs medical assistance. For the first time, Burbank and Collins allow medical aid to be dispatched to the scene. They never once called for medical assistance prior to that point, despite hearing Manny's cries that he couldn't breathe. Even when they allowed medical aid to be requested to the scene, they never told the dispatcher or paramedics that Manny was having issues breathing. Between 11.25 and 11.27, Rankin rolled Manny back onto his stomach. Rankin then placed his right knee on Manny's right shoulder blade and his left knee in the middle of Manny's back. The spit hood was placed over Manny's head at 11.27 p.m. Manny remained hogtied, face down, with Rankin applying pressure to his back for the next six to nine minutes until paramedics arrived at 11.34. The Tacoma Police Union said the decision to bring charges against Burbank, Collins, and Rankin was a quote-unquote politically motivated witch hunt and that a, quote, unbiased jury would not allow these fine public servants to be sacrificed at the altar of public sentiment, end quote. Cue I roll here. In response to this statement, Monet, Manny's sister, said, quote, a black person's death has to be recorded for it to be believed that it was police brutality or murder. It's not enough to have the facts. We need action to be taken so our people can be protected, end quote. She also said, quote, the world is watching and they need to do what's right, not what's convenient for them. They need to take a step back and realize this is a human being who was brutally beaten for something that's out of his control and it's caught on video. There's no plain politics with this, end quote. One important thing to note from both the Washington State Patrol's investigation and the Pierce County Sheriff's investigation is that the car Manny was allegedly quote-unquote messing with before Burbank and Collins stopped him has never been found, and Burbank and Collins couldn't provide any details about the car or its driver. What led up to the altercation between Manny and officers isn't on any of the videos, but there are the witness statements and videos, all of which are independent from each other. None of the witnesses know each other, and they all recorded the same events from different angles. 19 to 20 officers responded to the scene for one unarmed man who wasn't resisting arrest or fighting police. At the time of Manny's death, Tacoma PD didn't have a body cam policy, which likely would have answered a lot of questions people had in Manny's case. It's now mandatory for all uniformed Tacoma PD officers to wear body cams. 
There's also a statewide ban on chokeholds and neck restraints, and the city of Tacoma implemented a procedure for the use of spit masks, another policy that wasn't in place at the time of Manny's death. Manny's death also triggered the creation of a state task force to oversee so-called quote-unquote independent reviews of police-involved killings. Manny's family filed a federal civil lawsuit against the city of Tacoma and the Pierce County Sheriff's Office. On March 22, 2022, the Pierce County City Council approved a settlement of $4 million. The Ellis family is still pursuing their lawsuit against the city of Tacoma. The civil case is essentially on hold pending the verdict in the criminal case. Which brings me to where the case is today. The trial of Burbank, Collins, and Rankin has been delayed for several years. Part of the delay was the result of an interlocutory appeal related to an internal affairs investigation statement. The Washington Supreme Court heard arguments as to whether a compelled internal affairs statement from an officer who hadn't been charged should be disclosed to prosecutors. The state attorney general's office, who's prosecuting the case against Burbank, Collins, and Rankin, filed a subpoena for the entirety of the IA investigation into Manny's death. According to officials, Burbank, Collins, and Rankin were ordered to cooperate with Pierce County Sheriff's initial investigation of the case, or else they would face discipline up to termination. So the city of Tacoma argued that releasing the IA interviews would undermine cooperation in future internal affairs investigations, and they cited a U.S. Supreme Court case that found an officer's compelled internal statements can't be used as evidence against them in a criminal proceeding. Before the issue of these statements was decided by the Washington Supreme Court, the lower court judge in the case ruled in favor of the prosecutors in July 2022. He ruled the internal affairs interviews with Burbank, Collins, and Rankin must be released without redaction. Transcripts of those interviews were previously provided to the state AG's office, but they were fully redacted except for the signature page for each officer, which indicated their statements were quote-unquote compelled interviews. So essentially, those original transcripts were useless. The defense asked the judge to reconsider his decision to release unredacted interviews, and when the judge declined, they appealed to the Washington Supreme Court. Both prosecutors and the defense have asked the Washington Supreme Court for an expedited timeline for the case, given how long it's already been delayed. The Tacoma PD chief has stated he won't make a decision about the employment status of Burbank, Collins, or Rankin until after their trial. All three men remain on a paid administrative leave. The officer's trial is currently set for September 2023, and it's expected to last at least two months. Defense attorneys for the men have stated they will continue to push the narrative that Manny hassled a passing motorist before charging the patrol car and attacking officers. Quote, Officers say it was an accident brought on by Manny himself, end quote. The Ellis family's attorney, James Bible, said Manny's death and the circumstances related to it were, quote, reminiscent of a lynching. Just as so many in the past begged for their lives prior to being hung to death, Manny told his killers he couldn't breathe. Rather than hear his plea for help, the officers callously placed a spit mask over his head and watched him breathe his last breath, end quote. I'm going to leave you with the most heartbreaking quote I read in this case. It's something that will haunt me the way I know it haunts Manny's mom, Marsha. Quote, I should have kept him on the phone another five minutes. Maybe those police officers wouldn't have been there. End quote.
thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.